With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTradio.live. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, good to have your company. Second hour of the program, Mark Latham and also Renee Heath coming up shortly and a chance for you to have a say. We have that open line ready and raring to go for you right now. You can be part of the conversation uh, right here on TNT. So use it and uh, abuse it if you wish. Uh, from the Gaza Strip, a little bit of an update from AP. The Israel military said it has rescued two hostages from captivity in the Gaza Strip early Monday, marking a small but symbolically significant success in its quest to bring home over 100 captives believed to be held by the Hamas militant group. The hostages were released in a raid that included a series of Israeli strikes in Rafah, the city on the southern edge of the Gaza Strip, where 1.4 million Palestinians have fled. At least seven people were killed in the raids. Israel has described Rafah as the last remaining Hamas stronghold in Gaza after more than four months of war and signalled that its ground offensive may soon target the densely populated city. Uh, so there you go. Two hostages rescued in a raid that has involved the deaths of seven people as well. I think that is, and I'm stand to be corrected here, I think that is the first rescue of hostages done without agreement from Hamas. I think that's the first, which does surprise you when you consider how sophisticated the Israeli military is. Um, it's been a bit of a failure in terms of Hamas having the edge over the IDF and hiding those hostages until four months into the war. Now, from Australia, seven murderers, 37 sex offenders and 72 violent criminals were released from immigration detention by the Albanese government following last year's NZYQ High Court ruling. We have covered this extensively on the program, but this is news broken this afternoon from Canberra. That's who they released, 37 sex offenders. 72 violent criminals all released by the Prime Minister. Documents tabled in the Senate on Monday morning reveal the 149 detainees released also included 16 domestic violence offenders, 13 drug traffickers and five people convicted of people smuggling or other crimes of international significance. The 37 sex offenders include an undisclosed number of child sex offenders as well. As you know, they were under no obligation to release the 139 detainees. That was not the interpretation from the High Court, but they got the interpretation wrong and released them anyway. To think that in Australia, that you would have a government that releases that many um, hardened criminals in one go it makes you wonder why we've only had a half a dozen arrests since their release, doesn't it? When you consider how hardcore they are and how easy it was for the doors and the detention centres that they were in to be unlocked and they were released into the public, free to roam as they wish. There's something terribly wrong with all of that. This is Chris Smith on TNT. 
Russia, gas prices, COVID mandates. It just doesn't seem like anybody's doing anything about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So good to have you with us. I want to get down under now to where we're broadcasting from in Sydney, and I've got independent MLC. That's uh, an MP in the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. Mark Latham, welcome to TNT. Thanks very much, Chris. Always good to talk to you. Good to have you on. Uh, we should go to the Super Bowl first. Can we get it over and done with? Because I'm a 49ers fan. I've got all the gear. It's been out where being worn proudly for the last eight weeks. Uh, I can't believe that. Last second of overtime and you get nipped. Well, it was a thrilling game. It's only the second time in 58 Super Bowls that they've gone overtime. So it just shows you how close it was. For a lot of the game, it looked like your 49ers were going to win. They were kicking plenty of field goals and they had their nose in front. But, you know, it was a big play at the end, wasn't it? Your, your clutch plays matter. And the uh, quarterback and the, the uh, touchdown scorer there did it for the Chiefs and their back-to-back Super Bowl winners. So you've always got next year, Chris. Yeah, next year I guess we'll have to do. Oh, I turned it straight off. I'm one of those people that if your team loses, you just turn it straight off. I can't stand the the other side celebrating or getting all carried away. I just can't stand it. So I turned it well, off. I'm sure so, they've gone nuts. I'm sure the Chiefs have gone nuts. But uh, the 49ers were good, you know. They were long, long outside uh, propositions. The Chiefs, I think, yeah. were $1.20 favourites. So uh, the 49ers gave them a shock. Everyone thought it would be, oh, you know, 30 to 10, something like that. So the 49ers did, did well, and, and, and maybe it sets them up for next year. It does. I think it might set them up really well for next year. All right, let's get down to business. The Greens, Adam Bant, who wouldn't know how to spell economics, he say, he's saying no to Albo's housing scheme, but he's happy to sign off on it if we get rid of negative gearing. He does not know what he's talking about, does he? Well, he certainly doesn't realise that when Paul Keating as Treasurer got rid of negative gearing, it, it sent the rents uh, sky high, that people weren't investing in rental accommodation. So one thing the Greens say in housing policy is to be kind to renters and to bring down the, uh, the cost of renting in the capital cities in particular. Well, getting rid of negative gearing is counter to that chief objective of Greens housing policy. So he's, he's, he's hopeless and confused and certainly doesn't know what he's talking about. Now is the worst possible time to get rid of negative gearing because we need more investment in rental housing, all sorts of housing, to deal with the housing affordability crisis. So explain this to our viewers. How does this work? Um, Because he's saying that, that means that he presumes the Liberal Party will vote against the housing package, which means it'll be up to the Greens to get it over the line with the help of crossbenchers, right? Yeah, it's a form of parliamentary blackmail where you hold the government to ransom saying we don't pass your social housing initiative um, unless you agree to other aspects of our policy. So it's a real act of bastardry, particularly when it's so counterproductive for the Greens. Mm. Um, We'll have to see what the coalition parties do. Maybe they'll let this thing through. Uh, Maybe ban or back down, see some common sense on his threat. Um, but you can be sure the government will hold the line. They want their package through. And at mm. this stage, can we believe them? Of course, at this stage, they're saying they're not going to touch negative gearing. Mm. I just think back, you know, when I was reading that this afternoon, I thought to myself, what is it that Anthony Albanese has actually got through the parliament successfully? A major reform. He hasn't been able to get through IR. He didn't get the voice through. Um, he's had no luck reducing our electricity bills by $275. What has he actually done, Mark? Can you actually tell me or list, make a list for me? 
What's he done? I suppose they got lucky with budget management that the uh, resources uh, boom continued, the commodity prices went up and... Not uh, they're doing. ...some budget repair, but that, that's not their own work. That's essentially something that comes out of the resource sector and international prices. Uh, what have they achieved? It's hard to know, isn't it? Um, you can't really list a lot. Uh, the voice I can't think of anything. last year, and, and it, it was a hopeless failure, a waste of time. So, but let's give I him a free kick, mate. Let's give let's give Albo a free kick. What has he What has he done really well since he's been in? Well, uh, well, I, I say away from the parliament. I'll give him some points for stabilising the relationship with China. You know, we've been watching this okay. thing on the ABC, Nemesis, and Malcolm Turnbull, who basically and Scott Morrison, have got to a point where for four or five years. Uh, no Australian ministers were able to pick up the phone and talk to their Chinese counterpart. Now, we need to be True. tough with China, but we yeah. need to recognise to have no senior ministers talking to our major trading partner is very much counterproductive for Australia. So I think yeah. Albanese on the um, Chinese front has, uh, has probably got the, the balance right now. Be tough on them, but at least have a dialogue, be in a, a capacity to talk to them. And I suppose in, in, in trying to buy off some of the Pacific Islands, He's minimised a bit of the Chinese influence as well. So you'd say yep. on foreign policy, he hasn't been too bad. Albanese's maintained AUKUS and the submarine deal against the wishes of the left wing of the Labor Party and, and the Greens. So on foreign policy, he hasn't been too bad, but domestically he's been a disaster and uh, yep. in terms of achievements, a non-event. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Now, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, I think he's got some explaining to do. I've read this story about companies linked to suspected arms and drug smuggling and corruption won massive government contracts up until 2022 for the period of a decade before that, which, of course, was when the Liberal Party was in. This was to run Australia's multi-billion dollar asylum seeker offshore processing regime. An inquiry by former ASIO boss and Defence Chief Dennis Richardson also blames senior public servants for not using intelligence which could have prevented a decade of this under the Liberals. Has he got some explaining to do, do you think? Well, the Richardson report says it's not Dutton's fault. He didn't let out the contracts and he wasn't directly involved and he didn't ignore the intelligence. It's the senior public servant. So I suppose the bloke who, uh, again, has a black mark against him is Mike Pizzullo, who's been sacked from uh, Home Affairs um, in, in charge of these operations because he was so political behind the scenes, he was really trying to manipulate the politics of the federal parliament instead of being an independent public servant. So Bazzullo lost his job over that black mark and this news we've got about suspected uh, organised crime and drug and arms smugglers getting contracts for running our offshore detention. Again, you'd have to say Bazzullo was responsible and he's gone already. So, you know, if he had still been in that job, we'd be talking about sacking him today. You can't sack him twice, and thank goodness he's gone. You can't sack him twice. No, you can't, unless you want to bring him back. But you're right, and I guess that's fair enough to presume that the finer details of a gazetted tender, if, of course, some of these things were gazetted, would actually be signed off and, and investigated by various senior public servants. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the former government can say, look, to their credit, great credit, they stopped the boats, they stopped the people smuggling, they stopped the asylum seekers drowning at sea, uh, 1,500 of them, under the previous Rudd-Gillard Labor government. So that was a big achievement. But it has seemingly come at a cost that in running the offshore detention, some pretty seedy characters have got hold of taxpayers' money, and that shouldn't have happened. Um, you'd assume that it won't be happening in the future.
You mentioned to me today before we came on air the fact that you wanted to talk about these IR laws. They keep producing clangers once the the finer detail um, is revealed and business is saying that they will destroy all of those flexible working hours that exist in workplaces now, Mark, like time off to go and pick up your kids or attend appointments during office hours, etc. This is a huge dog dog's breakfast and it doesn't make the minister look too good. No, it's, it's something that was a non-issue. Nobody had heard about this right to disconnect that, that, you know, you don't have to answer the call from your boss after hours because in the private sector, obviously, you know, the emergencies happen, flexibility is required. It's a team effort to keep the business uh, profitable. And, and it's a global world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but there's some also, some, since we spoke earlier today, um, there's some evidence from the public sector, the Western Australian newspapers reporting that teachers in, in, in Western Australia are saying they won't take calls from parents after hours. So just imagine a situation, your child's come home from school, identified a problem that occurred that day, maybe it was bullying or a learning problem in the classroom or some other issue, and the parent can ring up the teacher to say, what, what, what's actually happened there today? My six-year-old or my eight-year-old tells me one thing, what actually happened in the classroom or the, or the playground? And the teachers are saying they won't take the call, leaving the parents totally in the dark and most likely very distressed. So nice. this will cause enormous problems also with basic customer service in the public sector. Too right. It's not the. It's not an Australian thing to do to be uncontactable, or not, maybe not an Australian thing to do. That's not a, a fair description. It's just not a good thing to ignore people who are trying to contact you, especially people that you're working with and trying to create something that's productive. I, I just don't get it. I've got to take a quick break, Mark, and we'll come back and we'll talk, among other things, about Barnaby Joyce in hot water, apparently, once again. Mark Latham, right after the break, right here on TNT. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints that this will be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's News Talk TNT Radio should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Caution. You are about to to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country is all about. TNT Radio. We'll get down to Victoria very, very soon and speak with Renee Heath from the Liberal Party. She's in the Upper House as well, but first to independent MLC Mark Latham once again. What is this about Coles? I read today um, they're on a bit of a um, 
uh, a dig at their wholesalers by the sound of it. They're trying to tell them they've got to cut their price by 14, 14% because of inflation. And uh, some of the e- e- economic people are saying that this is going to create some kind of discounting war. 14% cut prices. The only stories I hear about wholesalers feeding into the big supermarket giants, Mark, are that they are screwed endlessly already. Well, I suppose Coles is under pressure from the various inquiries, the ACCC and the Emerson inquiry, into why in particular our farmers are ripped off so badly that uh, when produce leaves the farm gate, the markup at the supermarket shelf is extraordinary, sometimes, you know, five, six hundred percent, even more. So um, uh, Coles and Woolworths are under pressure. If Coles can get some cheaper prices from wholesalers and genuinely pass that on, that's a good thing, but most particularly... What Coles needs to do is ensure that when the prices go up um, and then there's a reason to bring them down, they come down just as quickly. The, the real problem is that the prices yes. go up very quickly, but then it takes forever to get them back down yes. once the cost pressure comes off the supermarket. That's really been the issue. So Coles is deflecting blame, and I think the main game is for Coles and Woolworths to start doing the right thing. You know, in one of my roles as a reporter on one of the current affairs programs, I remember going around to various suburban stores for Coles and Woolies prices. And I worked out that despite what they say, uh, that they don't discriminate per class or or uh, socioeconomic grounds, they will charge you, you know, $1.80 for a tin of salmon in Neutral Bay, an upwardly mobile suburb in north, north of Sydney. And then they'll charge the same people half the price if you're shopping in Parramatta. Um, and, and I wonder how much of this shonky socio-economic, oh, let's charge them more because they can afford it stuff goes on that can be attributed to the fact that they're gouging us. Well, a fair bit, but the basic problem is we just talk about Coles and Woolworths. They've got such a big market share between the two of them. There's a little bit of competition from IGA and others, Aldi, but basically they're a duopoly. So whatever can be done to improve the competitive position of the minor players in that industry is a good thing. The, the Coles and Woolworths have got away with blue murder, mainly because they can. Uh, in the duopoly, they uh, haven't had competitive pressure to make sure the prices are always kept as low as possible. Yeah. Uh, doesn't Audi make a difference? Doesn't Audi keep them, keep them honest? Not available that enough, was the Chris. plan. You know, they're, they're around, but sometimes in bad locations, people like the convenience yeah. of, of shopping in the big malls where you can yeah. do your retailing and your clothes shopping and, and other business, plus some supermarket shopping at the same time. You don't see Aldi or IGA in the, in the big shopping malls. Maybe that's something that needs yeah. to be looked at. There needs to be an open access so they can take some floor space and provide some real competition. All right. Now, I want to talk about Barnaby Joyce, the National Party MP. Some of our American audiences would remember what Barnaby did to um, a couple of little puppies uh, of Amber Heard's a few years ago. Uh, he is a National Party MP. They're now talking about robbing him of some kind of uh, opposition portfolio because there's footage of him laying on the ground, muttering silly stuff on the phone after a night on the grog. He says that he'd been on medication as well, so the medication wouldn't have assisted the amount of alcohol he had. I had a bit of a chuckle. I turned the page. I didn't even finish reading the article. I thought, so what? Um, it's almost as if... Normal people out there, average normal people, um, are somehow unable to see 
any other person in a bad light. Well, I'm sorry, but everyone suffers bad, silly, embarrassing moments in their life. We are not perfect human beings. Yeah, well, I hate the aspect of the voyeuristic society that the individual involved has thought the thing to do was to film Barnaby Joyce in the state of distress on the footpath in Canberra instead of asking, yeah. are you OK? Can I do something to help you? Yeah. And then taking the footage and, and giving it to media outlets, the, the Daily Mail. So that's the thing that I dislike. You know, Barnaby Joyce, you make your own judgment about what people have seen, but go back a couple of steps and think how bad is What sort of person does that? Instead yeah. of being, you know, genuinely Australian and compassionate and saying, you're all right there, mate, can I do something to help you? They think the name of the game, the fun, is to embarrass the guy publicly when, yeah, we all know everyone's had a problem out on the streets at some stage of their mm. life, of course. So, mm. Chris, it's the thing that I don't like, the voyeuristic society, these mobile phones have made everyone a cameraman and yeah. too many people are thinking uh, they've got an obligation to embarrass other citizens, other Australians, instead of lending a helping hand. Yeah, I, you've said it perfectly, which is why I didn't even finish reading the article because I just thought to myself, so what? What, what, what well, I'd, normal I'd like everyday... who filmed it to be identified. Can we get there now? Yeah, name? let's do that. Why, why isn't there public attention on their bastardry? Okay, Barnaby Joyce is a public figure and he's got a problem. But the person who's done it is an absolute bastard. Why aren't they known publicly and a bit of scrutiny on them? And it might be a bit of a deterrent for others doing it in the future. Yeah, nice job. I like it. I want to talk to you about a story that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald today. New South Wales property taxes and stamp duty are absolutely swamping buyers. And when you start to look at what people are earning when they're at that level trying to get into housing markets, the stamp duty is astronomical. And it far exceeds the proportion of their wage as, it, as opposed to what it cost, say, 20 years ago. They made some comparisons with that as well. Stamp duty actually gets you nothing. And as I always say, market, you don't even get a bloody stamp. No, you don't get a stamp, and it's a tax on mobility. Uh, the labour market, the whole economy, has become much more flexible and mobile over the last 30 or 40 years. That's why stamp duty is such a bad tax. And surveys by the Productivity Commission in Canberra have shown that about 30% uh, of people won't move because of stamp duty. They'd like to move to get closer to where they work or closer to where their kids go to school, but the stamp duty is so prohibitive uh, in buying a, a new home then they're just stuck in a bad location, which is bad for uh, congestion on the streets. You've got much more traffic going longer distances out there because of a stamp duty. Our cities are much less efficient and people have got uh, less time with their loved ones because they're stuck in locations where they don't actually want to live. Uh, they'd like to move if there was no stamp duty. So that just tells you the story of, of, of what a dreadful tax it is. Uh, I thought the Perrottet government had a good reform in New South Wales. You give people a choice. You could pay a long-term mm. sort of um, um, rates equivalent instead of the upfront uh, $50,000 stamp duty. Uh, you could make a choice and make it easier for you to move closer to where you work, closer to where your kids go to school. Unfortunately, that reform was very limited, and even in that limited form, the new Labor government abolished it. So... We're back to square one. Yeah, we are. And you've got to give credit to Dominic Perrottet. At least he had a shot at trying to give people a choice and try and break it up a little bit. Has this Chris Minns, is this Labor Premier in New South Wales, has he got the bottle to make a decent reform of uh, stamp duty, do you think? 
No, they went backwards. The Perrottet reforms to actually give people choice were very good. Why, people, why should people uh, be locked into stamp duty? Why can't you have the choice to pay a smaller amount over a longer period of time to government so you've got some mobility? Um, you can move so he blew the whistle on that. actually like to live. So Minns has gone backwards. Right. And we'll just leave it the way it is, no doubt. Well, they just abolished the Perrottet reform. They, they said it was a, a permanent tax on you. Um, it was sort of a scare campaign in the election. It didn't really grab that many people, but with the help of the Greens in the upper house, they abolished the useful reform to help people avoid stamp duty. So if you're uh, paying stamp duty in the future and you don't like the fifty, seventy thousand dollar impost, and you'd like a choice to pay a much smaller amount over a longer period of time, you can't because of Chris Minns and that regressive decision to abolish a good reform. I just want to end with a little bit of sport. Let's bookend this segment with sport. We started with the Super Bowl and the win to the Chiefs, for those who don't know, over the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, in Las Vegas, same place as the Super Bowl, in about a month's time, we've got four rugby league teams from Australia slugging it out as part of the first home and, home and away round one uh, in front of an American crowd predominantly. How is that going to go down, do you think? Uh, they've got 30,000 tickets sold, apparently, I read this morning, and, and the stadium obviously has a far bigger capacity than that. It looks like it holds about double that number, so they're halfway there in trying to fill the stadium. Uh, they've got Russell Crowe doing ads in the United States saying it's football with a difference, which is basically no padding and helmets, uh, and the, obviously the big clashes and, and tackles are ferocious. So they're building a bit of interest, and um, it's a very ambitious uh, project, of course, I don't mm. think. They've got, you know, we haven't been able to establish rugby league in, 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 in Adelaide and Perth successfully in our own country, let alone doing it in the United States where their sports market is dominated by American gridiron, as we call it, basketball, baseball, ice hockey. You know, they're very, very prominent, successful sports. So it's a competitive yeah. market, but it's also a big market, particularly with the TV, right? So rugby league's yeah. trying to get a foothold. Very ambitious. I, I doubt they'll succeed, but at least they're having a go. Something different. All right. Maybe we can take some calls from our American viewers at the time and uh, see what their impressions were. Thank you, mate. Much appreciated. Have a great week ahead. Thanks, Chris. All, all the best to you as well. Good on you. Thank you for that. Mark Latham, independent Cheers. MLC, an independent MP in the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. Um, and some of the points he made about... Uh, Anthony Albanese. There have been positives for Anthony Albanese in Australia. I know you hear negatives from me primarily, but there have been more negatives than positives. And I would have thought it doesn't matter what government was in power after the Morrison government in Australia, China was going to come back cap in hand anyway, which is what they did. It wouldn't have mattered what particular party was there, except for the Liberal Party. It wouldn't have mattered who the Prime Minister was. It was going to happen anyway. Uh, similar to the gains that they made on the economy in terms of the mining industry uh, through the budget, which Mark mentioned as well. So I don't know whether you can actually give this current federal government in Australia any credit whatsoever for something that they have engineered, got past the parliament or made law. Maybe you can come up with something for me. Give us a call on our talkback lines. You can call us on from Australia and New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from the US and Canada, 1-888-201-6425. We've got to go to the newsroom for some news, of course. This is TNT. 
question? Huh? What are you guys doing today? The news. TNT Radio News. Sounds good. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Less than two years after taking office, Hungary's first ever female president has sensationally resigned amid an unprecedented political scandal. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has found himself back in hospital, this time with an emergent bladder issue. And Israel has launched a wave of violent airstrikes on the city of Rafah in southern Gaza, which has become the last place of refuge for nearly two million Palestinians displaced by the war. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It is TNT. Um, Very interesting. I was just looking at a a couple of bits and pieces from this afternoon's uh, federal parliament, and there's a lot of uh, finger pointing going on at Peter Dutton over what we discussed with Mark Latham. But uh, seriously, if you have a minister putting together um, a policy about making sure that there were offshore processing centres and people were not processed on your own uh, land or your own territory. Do you think the minister would sit down and personally broker the details? Uh, would he do the due diligence in reference to those subcontractors that he gave tenders to to look after these overseas processing centres? Come on. Come on. They're trying to get a, a sneaky one on Peter Dutton, but I think he's more adept at, um, you know, batting those away, which I'm sure he's doing. I want to get to the Upper House MP for Eastern Victoria right now. That's right, Victoria from New South Wales. Her name is Renee Heath. Renee, welcome to TNT. Hello. How are you going, Chris? I'm doing very, very well. I wanted to talk education with you this afternoon because there's a very big story that's come out of a release yesterday from the Grattan Institute and it's called the Reading Guarantee and it's called on governments to set ambitious new targets to lift the level of proficient readers from 68 to 83% in the next decade and 90% in the long term. I guess my first question was when I read this, one are we really almost only got 68% proficiently reading? That's the first shock to me. And secondly, why is it important to read and be good at it? Well, yes, that was a it was a very interesting report and one that really needs to serve as a reality check. It really shows that we are failing Australian and Victorian children. And to sum up what was in those findings, one third of Australian children cannot read properly. These kids are being failed by the education system and it showed in this report that the reason they're being failed is because we continue with discredited theories when it comes to teaching children how to read. So student who students who lack reading skills are more likely to fall behind, disrupt the class, end up unemployed or jailed. So really? Yes, really. So there is a huge personal cost for every single student who struggles with reading. And there is also a huge collective cost because the report showed that these failures are coming at an estimated cost to the economy of $40 billion over their lifetime. So it's it's huge. And on Friday night, I attended an education forum that was hosted by the Liberal Party of Victoria with educational experts. It was great. Right. And there was a common thread and that all the, spoke, the speakers spoke about, and that was universities are not teaching teachers 
how to teach and they're not teaching teachers how to manage classrooms. And this is something that needs to change immediately. And we, when we look at that report, it really does echo those sentiments. Dr. Hunter said that the quality of teaching is the thing that will shift the dial with our young people. Right. So straight away, it just gives us a clear pathway that universities need to come back to science-based and evidence-based teaching methods. Yeah, it's got to happen, and it's got to happen now. They need to. Um, they need to, like I said, learn how to teach children and learn how to manage the classroom. And it's unbelievable, but that isn't happening at the moment. Yeah, so it's. it's, the, it's- it's sad that we've only got 68%. And, you know, I wonder how much, though, I wonder how much onus there should be on parents because, you know, you can only allow children to read so much in a classroom when you've got a class mm. of 36 or 40, 40 kids. I don't know how many there are in classrooms nowadays. But at home, there's a little bit more time for the kids to read, and I wonder whether parents are doing enough to ensure that's going on as opposed to, you know, allowing them to play with their devices. Well, it's interesting you say that. And in the Herald Sun today, you would have seen that there, or you may have seen that there was a little clip on it. And parents that don't, the children of parents who didn't complete high school, high school themselves are up to five years behind in in um, reading. So it's a it's a massive issue. But regardless of what's happening at home, and you're absolutely right, homes are really a place where we can really set the foundation for literacy. But regardless of where kids come from, we have to remember that the biggest, the thing that will put them at the biggest disadvantage is whether or not they can read it or write. And that's something we have control over. So the Grattan Institute's reading guarantee is urging governments and schools to commit to coming back to what's known as structured literacy, which is a direct mix of, uh, sorry, a mix of direct instruction and phonics. And um, they describe You mean the phonics, you mean the phonics that 25 years ago or 20 years ago they decided was no good. You don't, you don't uh, pronounce out the, the, the syllables because that's not good enough. Let's just put words on a sight card so they can remember, you know, 8,000 words. Like that was just dumb right at the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, so that is sort of what happened, I guess, in the 70s as universities started going towards whole literacy, they called it, and they really stopped teaching kids how to decode the decode words and how to um, sound, sound out them words, out. like you said. And it, that's something that we've really got to come back to, and I've actually got a very interesting story about that, a, a personal story, I guess. Long before I was in politics, I used to meet once a week with some kids that were at at risk at school and help them with different things such as their schoolwork. And I'll never forget there was this young kid, just a gorgeous young boy, 15 years old, who came from a disadvantaged background. And I was so shocked one day when he just mentioned in passing that he didn't know how to spell his full name. It blew me away. I thought, what do you mean you don't know how to spell Ah. your full name? And as we dug down, it turned out he didn't know how to spell basic words. He couldn't sound out anything and he couldn't write anything. And this is what got me. He had never been held down a year at school. So I decided that, right, we're going to get to the bottom of what's going on with him. And when I asked him if he was currently being taught how to read, he said no. And in the same sentence as if it was just completely normal, he said, oh, but I see the school counsellor once a week. 
and we go through strategies to help me feel more confident about not being able to read or write. And this young, lovely young man honestly thought that he was incapable of reading. And me, I don't have a teaching background. I'm not a teacher. I thought maybe I should take his word for it. But I said to him, before I take your word for it, could I teach you what I know about decoding words? So week after week, we sat in a cafe and we went through the alphabet. He was 15 years old and we went through the alphabet. It almost felt patronising. But I went through what I remembered with him about how my mum would sit down and go, this is Aren't an A. you the a, best? Down, uh, oh, well, not you, really. You, but that this, is a, this is an amazing story. Well, it is an amazing story because we went through long sounds, short sounds, all these things that I remember thinking, oh, this is such a drag. It was such hard work, particularly for him. But after many months of persisting, he began to get it. And with that, he got a whole new boost of confidence and he started to sound out words. And it was amazing to me, and I will never forget it, to see his whole persona light up. And I believe he gained more confidence than from learning how to read than he did from going to counselling. Have you kept and in contact he, with him, Renee? Yes, and he, he reaches out to me probably once a year and just tells me what he's up to. He ended up getting a job and doing more than he ever thought was oh, possible. Great. But what still has stuck with me until today is that it's almost criminal that somebody within the education system should have sat with him. He Mm. was 15 years old. He hadn't been held down. Mm. They should have sat with him and taught him how to read. They should have persisted. and They they allowed him to slip directly through the cracks, didn't they? And there would be so many more. In fact, about if there's a classroom of 28 kids, about eight of them will not be able to read proficiently. That is not okay. We shouldn't be sending kids to counsellors because they can't read. That was a feeling they had. It wasn't fact because guess what? Today he reads. He had been lied to. He'd been told he couldn't and he can today. So to me, that just shows that this is a real life example of a preventable tragedy, like they said. Yeah. I saw it with my own my own eyes and that alone has given me some passion to see some changes in the education system. And one thing that Colleen Harkin said, and she's from the IPA, she's a wonderful lady, she said the biggest disadvantage that children have is not the postcode that they come from, it is whether or not they can read or write. Mm. And we have the power to change that, and I really believe we need to. Which underlines what I was saying about the onus being on those at home to give them assistance, to help them, to be there when they struggle, to answer the question so that they can move on to the next stage of reading. It's so important. What a great story. So chiropractor, politician, and school teacher as well. You are multi-talented. No, I I am certainly not. But I just want to throw a spatter in the work there. I think they can teach at home if they know how to read. But sadly, we've been seeing this over the last 20 years. We've seen more and more money go into education, more and more financial Mm. investment, but we've seen a a decrease. Yes. And we've really seen um, literacy. A decrease in standards, you mean? In standards. We've seen it going the wrong way. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're at a stage right now, and Dr. Hunter said it in this report, she said, we need to set our expectations higher. We need to stop accepting failure. And that is true because 
parents might not have the skills right now to teach their children phonics. Mm. Like, sadly, that is the case. Yes, kids will have a better outcome if they have that at home and when they have a bigger vocabulary, but that might not be the case. So that's where schools do come in. And we have to make sure that kids have a quality of opportunity. The best way that they will have that is if they know how to read and write, and that's going to come back to our teachers. Yeah, well said. Well said. That is impressive. You are an impressive person. That's fantastic. I want to talk about a wicked person after a quick break, and I also want to talk about the slippery suburban rail loop in Melbourne, um, which just seems to go from... Um, bad to worse by the sound of it. Anything left by Daniel Andrews usually goes that way. We'll take a break and come back with Renee Heath, MLC, right after this break on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Last week when Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the position of Joe Biden when it comes to late-term abortions, she had the phony rhetoric ready to go. What I will say is majority of Americans, majority of Americans wants to see their rights protected wants to see women have their rights protected, wants to be able to, wants, want women to be able to make those deeply, deeply personal decisions on their bodies, on their own, not politicians. That's what majority of Americans want to see. And so the president's going to stand with majority of Americans on this issue. Unborn babies have any rights then? I'm not going to get into that specific. I'm not going to get into that question. Rights for unborn babies? What are you, mad? (laughs) But let's take a look at how Americans really feel about the issue of abortion. This is from Gallup, May of last year. Only 34% of Americans believe abortion should be legal under all circumstances. 34%. A majority, 64%, say limited circumstances or not at all. And in the same poll, only 22% of Americans believe third trimester abortion should be legal at all. It just shows that Karine Jean-Pierre and her leftist buddies are a bunch of liars. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Internet crimes against children in New Mexico are real. And when it comes to protecting your children, the New Mexico AG's office and the ICAC unit are on the front lines. I'm New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas. There's nowhere to hide for online predators in New Mexico. We are working tirelessly using state-of-the-art technology and resources to seek out and find them wherever they are. Please talk to your children about the dangers that exist online, social media, games, and messenger apps. It's always important to know who you're talking to. Help fight online predators in New Mexico by submitting a tip today. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Now, for those who haven't followed it closely, Renee Heath, um, the suburban rail loop was one of the great promises, the unaffordable promises of uh, Daniel Andrews, the uh, chairman himself who no longer um, entertains that job. And uh, he wanted to spend trillions of dollars on this major project to put in this suburban rail loop. Uh, but now, of course, he was he was joined during the election campaign by Albo, the Australian Prime Minister, who threw in uh, a bucket load of money himself. But apparently the numbers don't quite add up and it's all a little bit slippery now. This has been a project that has been, there's been a hole in the bucket. We just do not know where the money keeps going. 
So the Herald Sun is reporting that the Australian Auditor General will launch an investigation into the suburban rail uh, loop. Right. And with, as to whether there will be value for money, because the Victorian government, of course, is asking the federal government for more money again. Right. So the Victorian Auditor General has previously found that the business case for the project just doesn't stack up. And there have been concerns about how the government will ever get the money to fund this in the first place. So Labor said that the first stage, which is Cheltenham to Box Hill, will cost about $35 billion. But everybody knows, and this has been case in point in terms of Labor can't manage money, this has been the perfect example. So they said $35 billion in the estimates. But just to look at their recent cost blowouts, for instance, with the east, the north east west, the east north link, right. more than doubling the project costs, and oh. they're still going up. So there's just no confidence around this this uh, project. Run, drop it. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it. A lot of people don't want this project. It's been it's been highly contentious. Labor has always been secretive about this project and they've re refused to release the business case for it and it hasn't been properly evaluated. No. And the Grattan Institute, who we're talking a, a lot about today, have called for the project to be dumped. So the Victorian government, just so you've got the numbers, are putting $11 billion of its own money. It sounds like they've saved up themselves into the first stage. <laughs> yeah, and then a big, the Australian, fat piggy bank. Yeah, good job, guys. And then the Australian federal government has committed $2 billion, And then, you know, the Victorian government have gone back and said, oh, look, we actually need $9 billion more. So oh. I think it's, it's very... Um, this is the sort of project that could bankrupt our state. Yeah. Or what's left of our state after Daniel Andrews and Jacinta Allen yeah. are done. I think um, hopefully this new investigation by the Federal Auditor General will stop the federal government putting any more money into this black hole of a project and focus their efforts on where we're actually going to see something for the money we're putting in. Exactly. Now, to the dastardly and very wicked Clementine Ford, a journalist in Melbourne, um, she's been rightly outed. I noticed an article written by um, Mr. Bolt today. Uh, she was circulating the names, the photos of a WhatsApp group because they dared to be supportive of Israel. They were prob probably predominantly Jews. How dare she think that they are some kind of criminals, those individuals themselves, they're not part of the IDF, <laughs> and, and out them the way... They were, and some of them were even abused. This lady, Clementine Ford, is probably one of life's oxymorons, I think. Oh, yes. She's an expert on sexism, but she sees nothing wrong with signing a book that she wrote with, have you killed any men today? If not, why not? Like yeah. that actually, it's reported that that happened. Yeah. And remember in 2018, at a Lifeline event that was featuring Ford, it had to be cancelled after she made a a Twitter comment saying all men must die. Mm. Again, this is a complete contradiction. We're talking about lifeline, like life, remember that word, and all men must die. And, of course, she said wow. that the coronavirus wasn't killing men fast enough. Yeah. And which I find it funny because she studied gender studies. So sometimes I think, how would she even know what a man is? Is she talking about his chromosomal background <laughs> or right. some other measure? That's right. But now it is very <laughs> scary to see that she has channeled her hatred in another direction, and wow. that's towards the Jews. 
And she has been part of circulating 600 names of Jewish people, including their occupation, photos of them, social media um, links. This is unacceptable. And this is, I believe, incitement. And if you support Israel, you are going to get attacked, you are going to get harassed, and you are going to get bullied bullied by activists like this. And she knows that. She knows that. And anti-Semitism has got so bad, mm. we're seeing it on the streets of Melbourne, we're seeing it on university camps, um, campuses, and now a spreadsheet is being widely circulated online. So you would have thought that Jewish people in Australia would have a safe haven here, but they mm. haven't. How dare and- they do such a thing? They are, they are, they are people who have come here either themselves or their family years ago to flee this kind of retribution, this kind of punishment, this kind of moronic um, discrimination, and we can't keep them safe. Like it's just pathetic. It's very sad, actually. And and um, a prominent Jew that I'm, I obviously really respect is David Southwick, and he said, "What's happening on the streets?" Um, of the Middle East should not be happening here. No. But there seems to be so much hate on the inside of some people that they're waiting for a disaster somewhere in the world so some of that hate can spill out. And I believe that we have to we have to fight against that attitude at all costs because Australia has been one of the most successful multicultural nations on earth. So there is so much that can be done and achieved through the law when it comes to incitement and things like this. Mm, but I hope I believe, they act on her. Well, I hope they do, but I don't know if they will. And I guess this is where we come in. I believe it's a cultural battle and everyone is entitled to their own view. Everyone has the right to free speech and everybody can articulate their own argument. Yeah. But this is not that. This is in- intimidation and incitement and it has no place here. And yeah. I think that because we have lived in such an incredible arc of history where peace, prosperity, tolerance have been the natural state of things, if we're not careful, we can think that that's normal. But no, those things have to be fought for. So the average Australian is quite polite. And when they come up against an angry mob, they probably just opt to stay out of it and mind their own business. Mm. But if we are not careful, we will not have that privilege for very long. So I would honestly encourage people to stand up strongly against hatred. We cannot allow this stuff to continue in our own backyard. We cannot turn a blind eye because we are one of the most successful multicultural nations on earth. And that is under threat if we allow people like Clementine and her buddies to have their way. So we've just got to stand up strongly against them whenever we see it. All right, a hard question for you now. I want uh, I want your personal um, revelation on this. Have you got yourself tickets to see Tay Tay? I have not this time. I have. When I was a little bit younger, I was a major Taylor Swift fan. I came home a week early from an overseas trip to come to her, con- uh, to <laughs> her concert, and let me tell you, it was worth it. But so I'm not going this time. Devastated. Oh, uh, you've waned. You're, you're... I've waned. I've sold out. But oh. I think that I'm very happy she's here. I think the Taylor effect is going to be great for the economy. <laughs> well, you're going to. It's a. She's a billion dollar show, isn't she? In terms of the it's... people who come and and come to Melbourne for these concerts, it's a billion dollars added onto the economy. 
It certainly is. And I think Melbourne deserves it. We were the longest lockdown city in the world because of dictator Dan. And I think businesses took an absolute hammering. Yeah, I think our confidence was knocked once again when Labor went and they um, cancelled the Commonwealth Games. So I'm stoked to have Taylor here. I wish I was going. Yeah, um, you can't get I'm- an audience. You're important, don't that? Don't they know who you are? I can give it a red hot go. I can say, you know, yes. <laughs> don't you do know you who know I am? who I am? Backbencher in the opposition. 